Good morning, church family. Well, you're faring okay with all this snow? Yeah? Sore shoulders, sore back, you're okay? Yeah? <laughs> well, I've been feeling that a little bit too. Yeah, we've, we got our exercise this week, didn't we? And we're thanking the Lord for that, even as Sammy prayed about that a moment ago. Well, let's exercise our minds and our hearts. What do you think about that? Let's enjoy the Lord and, and uh, step into his word together. If uh, you'll grab your Bible with you or your phone and let's head for the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament toward the end of your Bible. You'll find the book of 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning, church family, and uh, retrieve that note page from your bulletin if you would. And this morning, if you got out of the house without your Bible, just let us know. We'll We'll be glad to share a copy of God's Word with you. Just put your hand up. The guys would be ready to pass off a copy of the Bible. You'll be glad you have that in your hand. And church family, were I to begin this morning by asking how many of you are Christians today and here today as a direct result perhaps of the influence of a godly mother in your life, who loved Jesus, my guess is that more than a few of you would raise your hand. A mother played a significant role in your journey to Jesus. And were we to drill down a little bit deeper, some who raised their hand would tell how in their home growing up, the only real spiritual influence there was came from this mother. Dad was there, perhaps, hard worker, a, a good provider, a fun guy to be with, but spiritually walled off, no desire for, no, no time for, really, for church stuff, for Jesus. And I wonder if I would be telling, at least in some measure, your story as I just recount that. A few weeks ago, I came upon a short piece written by a pastor recounting an experience that he had had early in his ministry, and I I just wanted to share it with you. He writes these words. I got a call from an elderly woman. We'll call her Jan. She called because her husband was in the hospital and dying, and she asked if I would go see him. I had never met him. I understood that he was a tough sort of guy with no interest in Christianity Jan and her adult children were praying as they viewed this as kind of a, maybe a last opportunity for him to give his life to Jesus in simple saving faith. I entered the hospital room. Jan's husband was in bed with tubes everywhere. Jan was at the bedside holding his hand and slowly rubbing it. I sat down on the opposite side of the bed near him, and I sensed he wasn't pleased with me being there but I commenced with some small talk very abruptly he said pastor if you have something to say you say it there was disdain for me in his voice that well if I'm honest it kind of ticked me off I rose from my chair bent down close to him and I said well then let me get right to it you're about to die without Jesus you are going to hell You can deny it all you want, but you can't deny the truth of Jesus in your wife. And then I looked in her direction. He looked like he might take a swing at me. But the moment I mentioned Jan, 
His whole face changed. He looked over at her. There she is holding his hand. He said, yep, you're right. She's one fine cookie. And then the pastor continues. Think of Jan all those years taking the kids to church, reading them the Bible with no spiritual support whatsoever from her husband. Think of all the faithful wife responsibilities she did for him year after year after year. And now she's holding his hand on his deathbed. The effect? At the end of his life, he couldn't speak evil of Jan or her faith or her Jesus because he had seen it consistently lived out all those years in her life. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And we'll stop right there. And I can just imagine that there is someone here saying to themselves, it figures, the wives get six verses and the guys get just one. What's the deal with that? If that's what you're thinking, I promise we're going to take that question up here in just a moment. But first, may the Holy Spirit, church family, be pleased to enable us to really understand and live out these words, which, which often don't receive the warmest reception from women, outside the church for sure, but also inside the church. However, when we understand this passage rightly, this is an extraordinary portion of the book of 1 Peter. It's, it's hope-filled, and it's, it's affirming for all Christian wives who are living in a marriage right now, with a spouse who does not share their faith in God or their love for Jesus as Savior and Lord. For about the last four months now, we have been studying this letter authored by the Holy Spirit, but penned by the Apostle Peter. It's a letter written to exiles, and that's Peter's word. That's not our word. Written to first century men, women, and young people who have heard of the one true God who came into the world in the person of Jesus and died for sin in their lives that separates them from God and restores that relationship. 
They have believed this message that they have heard, and they have become Christ followers. They become Christians. And for that, their culture and their employers and their friends and their families have turned on them rejected them and are actively persecuting them in the most aggressive, sometimes even life-threatening ways. These Jesus followers are truly spiritual exiles. They've become spiritual outcasts in the towns and in the communities that they have lived in all their lives. So how should they live for Jesus in a culture that does not share their love for Jesus? How do they do that? Well, that is precisely why Peter writes this letter. How do I live for Jesus when my surrounding culture doesn't share my faith? That's what the book of 1 Peter is all about. And and church family, it is a timely letter for us. Living as we do in a culture that, that grows increasingly more closed off to the Bible or to the thought of God as the supreme sovereign over all things, and more closed than ever to Jesus as the only Savior who can restore this relationship between God and mankind that sin has ravaged. And we are presently in a section now of Peter's letter that fits very neatly, as you see there on your note page, under the heading, When Evangelism Doesn't Look Like Evangelism, Part 4. Now, part four means what? There's been a one, two, and three, right? (laughs) We are midway through chapter two. Peter is thinking evangelism thoughts. In other words, he's thinking about how do I share my faith in Jesus in, in such a hostile, closed culture? Verse nine, this is where he expresses this thought. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's personal treasured possession. That's you and I right now in Christ. That's a description of us. That you may do what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What's Peter thinking about? He's thinking evangelism thoughts. He's thinking about sharing your faith, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. He's thinking evangelism. But he knows that his readers are living in a very hostile to Christianity culture. They're in a very anti-Jesus environment. These Christians aren't going to go out and stand on a street corner and shout salvation truth, and they're not going to be passing out four spiritual laws tracts. And they might even be killed just for naming Jesus' name. And Peter knows this. And so for him, evangelism begins not with what we say about Jesus, but how we live him out. His values, his character, his love before those who don't know Jesus in a saving way yet. How do we live Jesus out? Not how we talk about him. But how do we live him day in and day out? Now, of course, we do need to be able to talk about Jesus clearly with passion, with conviction. And and Peter's going to get to that a little bit later on here in chapter 3. He's going to help us to know how to talk about Jesus. But first he says, hey, Christian, let your life speak so clearly 
for Jesus that some will sincerely want to hear what you have to say about him. You have lived him out first. Evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism. I'm just living Jesus. And with that, Peter takes us into four places where unbelieving people can see the gospel before they ever hear it. As we live before those who have authority over us with a submissive and respectful heart and attitude. And so the first place that Peter took us was into our own personal lives and how we're just living it out, verses 11 and 12. The second place he took us was into our civic life, into the arena of government where the government has authority over us, and, and we called this citizenship evangelism. That was verses 13 to 17. And then in verses 18 to 20, Peter says, hey, let's also talk about vocational evangelism, living out Jesus in your workplace with a submissive heart, a submissive attitude towards those who are in authority over you. And then in verses 21 to 25, and Rob took us here last Sunday, Peter pointed us to Jesus as the perfect example of what this submissive spirit in a hostile environment might look like. Verse 23, when he was reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus handled handed all of that betrayal and that slander and that pain and that cruelty and injustice over to his heavenly father, knowing that his father would make it right. And this freed Jesus up to simply love, to love even those who were nailing him to the cross. He truly is our perfect example of godly submission for the gospel's sake. But Peter's not done yet talking with us about evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism. He has one more place that he wants to go yet. And we're going to call this home front evangelism. Maybe the hardest place of all, church family, to, to live out Jesus. Home front evangelism. Personal life, live holy before my, my culture, got it. Uh, civic life, Live in submission under the authorities that are over me in the government. I see that. Vocational life. Submitting to my boss and being the very best employee I can be as, a, as an expression of my love for Jesus. Check. But what if God in his sovereign love calls you to live out the true gospel with an unbelieving spouse? a strongly opposed to Jesus and to all things Christian spouse in this arena called marriage, in the privacy of a home, with a family, in the most intimate of all human relationships, emotionally and physically. What then? What about that? Well, this is exactly where Peter wants to go in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And church family, this is so important that we, it's really important that we grasp the context into which Peter is setting these verses. And we stress context over and over and over here 
in the Bible church and in your personal Bible study because it is so critical to accurately understanding God's word. If we blow through the context here that these verses have been set into, we're going to miss what the Holy Spirit is trying to say to us here. This is not a discourse on the equality of the sexes. It's not a discussion about male and female status. It's not even a discussion about Christian marriage. Although the things addressed here can be wonderfully beneficial to a Christian marriage. Peter here is addressing a marriage where you have a Christian partner married to a non-Christian partner. That's the entire context. And the word likewise in verse 1 and again in verse 7 is the tip-off for this because that word says, look back at the places we've just talked about. Likewise. So, so whatever happened in the recent context, he's bringing that forward. Likewise, look back at your personal, civic, and vocational life arenas And Peter says, you're going to find a submissive spirit being called for there as as a way of, of living out Jesus. Likewise, he would say, in the same way, Christian wife or husband, that you live holy and submit so as to possibly lead some to consider Jesus in those other places. So likewise, live that way with your unbelieving partner. Who knows what the grace of God and your example might lead to? Home front evangelism. Are you with me? Super important that we be in the same place as we understand this context. Now, Peter begins by speaking to Christian wives who are in spiritual exile, married to an unbelieving husband. And he gives them six verses of instruction as opposed to the Christian husband who gets just one verse. And I promised you that I would speak to that. So let me do that now. So the reality on the ground in the first century is that as Christianity spreads across the Roman Empire, marriages are surely going to be impacted as as one spouse turns in faith, but the other does not. A quick look at, at churches, even today in our own culture, will show that As a percentage, women often outnumber men and often they're more responsive to the gospel than men. In most churches, there are more women than there are men. And there could be a number of reasons for why this is true and we could debate all this. Probably it has something to do, though, with stinky man pride. Probably. Where it's expressing itself as, as this macho self-reliance being strong and independent and not wanting to show weakness or or that we have a need especially not the need for a savior and women there they just don't seem to be stuck in the same way they seem to be able to respond to the gospel more readily and in greater numbers than men do but remember now this this is the, brutal, the, the brutality of a, of, a, of a male-dominated first-century Greco-Roman world that Peter is writing into. It's a world in which women are viewed as, as really little better than servants whose role it is to meet men's needs. They have no rights. They have no voice. 
Their opinion is considered irrelevant and certainly not wanted. And so let's say that a husband in the first century becomes a Christian. So deeply entrenched are the cultural rules for women and wives that his wife will dutifully accept this as, ah, it's just going to be the new norm for all of us, and she's going to follow his lead. Not always, of course, but most often this would be the case. The, then the potential for marital conflict as a result of him coming to faith is, is really lessened. It's, it's minimal. But what about when a wife learns about Jesus, his death for sinners, his resurrection and the promise of forgiveness of sin and life in him, and she follows Jesus. She believes in Jesus as her Lord and Savior. For her to reorient her spiritual compass without her husband doing this in the first century, it was almost unthinkable. She is expected to follow the religion of her husband, to keep worshiping the the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods that he worships. For this Christian wife, then, the, the implications of her faith decision are huge. They are huge. She'll be seen as a rebel who doesn't know her place. She'll potentially bring conflict into her marriage that would not be there if she just stayed in line. She could become a source of embarrassment for her husband. He'll be mocked because apparently he can't control her. He might even divorce her, cutting her off from care and support and maybe even from her children. He had the power to do that. To follow Jesus was a huge deal for a woman in the first century with potentially devastating implications for her. The Holy Spirit, through Peter, recognizes this, and so he directs six verses to Christian wives, as opposed to just one for the guys, precisely because her struggle could be immensely more difficult than his. And so God is caring for her here in a very precious way. And God is not picking on her by giving her six verses and the guy's only one. And Peter is not picking on her as he is sometimes accused of doing here, picking on women and just blown by the guys. Not happening. This is a beautiful picture of God's care, his understanding. So then, how does a Christian wife who is in spiritual exile, married to an unbelieving husband, relate to him in such a way that she lives out home front evangelism? Her heart longs to see her unsaved husband come to faith in Jesus. How does she enhance the possibility of that happening in her marriage? That's where Peter goes. Are you with me? You following? Say yes. Okay, great, great. It all begins, as you see there on your note page, with a command in verse 1. Likewise, wives, what? Be subject to your own husbands. Now here, Peter is alluding to the impossible to miss beauty of a submissive spirit. 
Again, the word likewise, what is it doing? It is pointing us back, back into chapter 2. How does a Christian live before an anti-Christian government? Be subject, right? Verse 13. How does a Christian live in a non-Christian place of employment with an aggressively opposed to Jesus' boss? How do you do that? Be subject. Verse 18. Submit in that environment. How does a Christian wife live when married to a non-Christian husband? Be subject. The exact same word in all three of these places. And remember now, Peter, we've been over this ground. Peter is using a military term here that means to arrange in ranks under a commander or to line up under your commander. Maybe the the best rendering for us here in this moment would be to say, Christian wives, deliberately as an act of your will, put yourself in a place of submission under. Line up under your husband, under your spouse. Now, the culture of the day required, in fact, we could say it demanded that a wife follow her husband's religion. A wife that became a Christian would be perceived as a, as a woman in rebellion, truly. And so Peter asked these wives to counter this rebellious perception even as they follow Jesus. Counter this perception. By affirming in every way possible in your marriage that you are willing to submit to your husband's leadership. Dismantle every accusation that people in the culture would be making saying that Christianity destroys marriages. It messes with the status quo. It encourages wives to be independent and disrespectful of their husbands. You counter every one of those charges, Peter says. And by asking the Christian wife to do this, Peter is not asking for something that is radical or brand new or had never been in place before. God created marriage, didn't he? And he designed it to function best in a particular way with a loving servant leader husband and a willing respectful submissive wife and this goes all the way back to the garden of eden sin though came in and distorted this divine order creating husbands who do not love and lead well and wives who don't submit and respect them Sin does that. And so when we talk about redeeming a broken marriage, the Bible is always going to take us back to God's original design. That is husbands who lovingly lead and wives who, submissive and, who are submissive and respectful to his leadership. And in that sense, a marriage works great. It's God's design. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Wives, submit to your own husbands, What's the next phrase? As to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Or how about 1 Corinthians 11.3? But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. 
order, a specific design. Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be what? Reviled, spoken ill of, falsely accused. This is God's design for great marriages. And, and not in these verses or anywhere else in the scriptures are women ever presented as being inferior to men. Women and wives are not inferior in character. They're not inferior in intelligence. They're not inferior in virtue. They're not inferior in their giftedness. They're not inferior in spirituality. They're not inferior in any way, period, to a man. But wives have been created by God to thrive best in a role of respectful submission to the headship role of a loving leader husband that God has placed into that marriage. And this is what Peter is calling for here from these Christian wives. Well, one of these wives then says, well, yeah, but what if my unsaved husband is not that loving leader that God designed? What about that? He's harsh, he's demanding, he's detached, he's ungrateful, he's selfish, he's not tender. I feel used and taken for granted by him, and he only ever makes fun of me and my faith. What about that? What's the command? What's the command? Not a suggestion. What's the command? Yeah, there you go. Be subject. Respectfully line up under him. Peter writes these words precisely because this is exactly what many of these Christian wives in these homes were experiencing. All of the really rugged, ugly stuff. It's not easy. That's why Peter writes these words to her. But you have no idea what it's like. Church family, you know, I've been doing this pastoring thing long enough to have heard these words many times with, with deep sobs. And these wives are right. I have no idea what it is like for her. But the Holy Spirit knows exactly what it's like for her. Again, this is why he moves Peter to write these words. The Holy Spirit knows. He doesn't want you bailing on your marriage or staying in it, but, but walling yourself off emotionally and, and, and physically. He will supply what he's asking of you. He will do that. Do you believe that? You respectfully submit to that husband and you, you believe and you trust that the Holy Spirit is going to supply what you need. So that you can be the most accurate reflection of Jesus before your husband as God enables you to be that. Peter will write in the opening of his second letter in 2 Peter 1.3, God's divine power has given us, what are the next three words? Everything we need for life and godliness. Do we believe it, church? We can trust him for that.
Now, there is one exception to this respectful submission command, just as there was that one exception in the civic arena and also in the vocational arena in those previous verses. And that is when an unbelieving husband would require his wife to do something that God in his word has clearly forbidden or when he tries to prevent her from doing what God in his word has directly commanded. If he demanded that she give up practicing her Christian faith or, or, or maybe he attempted to, to force her to compromise the standards of holy living that she's been given in God's word, then in that instance, James chapter 4, verse 17, guides this wife. And those verse, that verse says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, what is that? Well, that's sin. That would be sin. And so she'll be unable to submit if it's going to require her to sin against her Lord. She will, as respectfully as possible, not submit in that instance. And then accept the consequences for Jesus' sake. Of course, if those consequences ever involved abuse, those, this would require immediately seeking safety, moving out of that moment, getting help and counsel. Wifely submission never calls her to endure abuse. Right? Right, church? We need to hear that. Some wives, I think, get confused here. Well, then Peter goes on to say that when this respectful submission is in play in the life of a Christian wife, it can actually become a powerful redemptive tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit, which brings us to the motive for why a Christian wife lives this way, willingly submitting to her un saved husband why would she do this if you flip your note page over verse one likewise wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word they may be what one without a word by the conduct of their wives wow there's the motive Aside from a Christian wife desiring to be obedient to her Savior, Jesus, in all areas of her life as he enables her to do that, including being submissive to her husband, she is genuinely motivated to do this kind of dying-to-self-submission role out of a deep concern for the salvation of her unbelieving spouse. She longs for her husband to know Jesus. Peter is saying that a Christian wife is in a powerful position of influence and might be the tool that God uses for her spouse to see the eternity-changing truth of, of Jesus in his life. And this is where Peter goes. Wives, see yourself as a gospel witness to your husband. And so powerfully positioned is this wife that Peter can say, so that even if some do not believe, they may be one without a word. Without a word. Now, this doesn't mean that saving truth about Jesus, the gospel is never shared by a Christian wife with her husband. If and when he ever asks, man, she's going she's gonna to tell him about Jesus. But Peter here is saying that she doesn't, 
She doesn't preach at him. She doesn't argue him into heaven. She doesn't needle and prod him incessantly about believing in Jesus. She doesn't put Bible verses on the bottom of his beer cans. She doesn't stick evangelistic tracts under his pillow at night. She doesn't give him Jesus calling as a devotional on Father's Day. She doesn't do this. She doesn't ask her pastor to casually drop by her house because she's going to have her husband ready when he does. Six o'clock on Tuesday night. And yes, I've been asked to do that more than once. Peter doesn't tell these wives to do anything like this. Not even a hint of that. What's the directive, church family? So that even if some do not believe, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. And this is the next thought there on your note page. Peter says, Christian wife, let your life, the conduct of your life, your actions and your attitudes, not words, but, but your conduct, your actions, speak for you of your love for Jesus and your love for your spouse. Let him see the gospel day in and day out as it is transforming your life. Are we all on the same page here? This is beautiful. Verse 2. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. What exactly will this unbelieving spouse see? Well, no less than six virtues are highlighted by Peter. Six qualities of character. He's going to see your submissive spirit. We've already talked that out. He's going to see your respect for him in the way that you honor him and seek to meet his needs, the way you, you speak of him to others. You will not criticize him or make jokes about him to others on social media. And sadly, I have seen that. She doesn't do that. He's going to see your purity. This is moral purity here. Irreproachable conduct in the sexual arena. Never giving him cause to question your faithfulness to the marriage, never having eyes for another or being in any situation that could be interpreted by him as something less than devotion to him. And this moral purity, it's going to spill over in other places. You're going to tell the truth all the time, even if it hurts. And, and your financial integrity is going to be in place under this heading of moral purity. The way you use your money, the way you spend the family dollars. Basically, Faithful to God and faithful to your husband. Or to say it another way, you never intentionally break his trust. That's purity. And an unbelieving husband will see modesty in his Christian wife. And, and church family, this is such an important and often dismissed arena in the church today that my intent in this moment, unless the Lord returns, is to come back here in two weeks 
not next Sunday. We're going to talk about the guys next Sunday. But the Sunday after that, we're going to step back into verses 3 and 4, and we're going to talk about modesty evangelism. You ever heard of that? Modesty evangelism? I doubt you've heard about that. But we're going to talk about that. Because that's exactly what Peter's thinking about. And what the, the beauty of that is that nobody's going to come back and say, well, Tim, you're picking on people here. No, this is just part of the, it's just part of our study of First Peter, and we're going to land in verses 3 and 4 in two weeks. You might want to be here on that day, by the way. <laughs> a lack of modesty on the part of a Christian wife, it draws attention to her physical beauty. Using that beauty and its adornments to, to attract the gaze of of other men, perhaps, or, or possibly even the envy of other women. In either case, the heart is wrong. And Peter says modesty begins in the heart. It's essentially a, a godly humility that expresses itself in how a person, in this case a Christian wife, adorns herself. God gave, gave each of us a body, and it's good. The body is good. God made it. And he's actually going to resurrect it someday and redeem it completely. But it can be misused, can't it? Why do advertisers use female bodies to sell outboard motors, for crying out loud? Why? Or motorcycles or, or, or even guns and ammo. Why do they do that? It's because the female form is sensually powerful. Immodesty abuses that power for selfish purposes. Does that mean then that a Christian wife should not wear makeup or comb her hair or wear jewelry or look sloppy and frumpy? I don't think that's what it's saying. Do you think that's what it's saying? It's not saying that at all. No, that could that could call for attention and draw people's attention to you looking frumpy, right? You could use that as a spiritual thing and say, wow, look how spiritual I am. I dress frumpy. (laughs) No, Peter's not not thinking about that. So he could go either way. That's not the point. God has given women an incredible physical beauty, but that must not drive the day. That's what Peter would be saying. In our culture, it drives the day, doesn't it? And it's hard for Christians not to get sucked into that. And that's why we're going to talk about that and give a whole morning to it. With the modesty Peter is speaking of here, though, it's, it's all of life and body glorifying Jesus. A Christian wife with this modesty wants Jesus to be noticed, not her. Boy, that's so cre- critical, so important. This wife wants his grace in her life to be the thing that people find attractive. Peter says, your hair won't evangelize your husband, but your modesty might. Your jewelry won't attract attention to God, but your modesty could. Your clothes won't adequately convey the love Jesus has for sinners, but your modesty just might do that. As a watching community and as a watching husband, see this internal beauty of a humble spirit, some might just think, you know, maybe there is something to her Christianity. And I want to know more. Homefront evangelism. 
Submissive, respectful, pure, modest. And then Peter adds gentle and quiet. Gentle means soft, calm. Quiet means a a promoter of peace. One who's in control. And this is her disposition. A consistent reflection of how she carries herself in her marriage. Gentle and peace-loving. And notice how all six of these virtues, virtues mirror the fruit of the Spirit. Some of you are already ahead of me. You knew this was coming. Galatians 5, 22, 23, but the fruit of the Spirit, what is it, church? Well, it's, it's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the character of Jesus being lived out by a wife in a, in a marriage where her husband doesn't share her faith. And Peter says, this is very precious in the sight of God. How cool is that? Will a Christian wife do these internal heart virtues in her life perfectly? Is she going to do this perfectly? No. Never failing to reflect Jesus in her marriage? No, she's not going to do that. We're all sinners. We're all saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We all mess up. It's not perfection that's being called for. It's direction here, isn't it? This is the direction of her life in public and in private. And if there are children in her home as a mother, this is the direction of her life. She won't do it perfectly. Her heart, her desire is to be these virtues. First, because God delights in them. But second, so that this grace of God might break into her husband's life as he sees it in her life. She wins him without words, perhaps. Submissive, respectful, pure, modest, gentle, and quiet. I'm just going to tell you right now, husbands worldwide are wired to find these virtues very attractive. Let any husband have a choice between these qualities in his wife or a loud, impulsive, flirting, combative wife, and guess which one he's going to choose. Every time. The angry, fighting, nagging wife is not going to do anything to draw her husband to Jesus. But a wife whose heart is submissive and whose, whose spirit is gentle, even in the context of disagreement and conflict, is going to amaze a perceptive husband. Over time... She lives out something so powerful to him as Jan did to her husband in that opening story that he cannot miss it. She's one fine cookie, right? Now, Peter wraps all of this up by pointing to Sarah, Abraham's wife in the Old Testament, as an example of a wife who knew God and yielded to her husband with a submissive spirit verse 5 for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord it's a picture of submission now does this mean Christian women today should call their husbands Lord (laughs) hope not (laughs) some guys might say hey this sounds pretty good (laughs) But that's not the point. That's not the point at all. It's not what Peter's saying. He's, he's focused on the submissive heart that Sarah reflects with her words. She's, she's, a, she's, she's modeling this 
says Peter. And you are her children, Christian wife, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The end of verse 6. The New Testament declares, as you may know, that all of us who have followed Jesus in saving faith are children of Abraham. We're called children of Abraham because we exercise the same faith in God that that Abraham exercised. So we're called children of Abraham. But Peter just plays off of that thought. And he says, and all Christian wives who follow in the steps of Sarah and her submissive spirit to her husband are in a sense daughters of Sarah. You follow that thought? And then Peter adds this, that in this submission, they do not fear anything that is frightening. Now that's kind of an odd expression. But it's Peter's way of saying that these wives in exile, married to unbelieving husbands who may be very hard to live with, He says, don't be afraid, Christian wife, to submit to him. You might be afraid that if you do, it will not go well for you. You will will suffer. You you will be used or, or maybe worse. Don't give in to that fear, Peter says. Your God is bigger than those fears. Do what is right. Submit. Be respectful. Live pure and faithful. Be modest inwardly and outwardly. Show a gentle and quiet spirit in control. And leave the rest to your God. Don't be afraid. He is big enough. That's what Peter says. He's big enough. Wife married to an unbelieving husband. Do these things by the grace of God that the Holy Spirit has promised to supply. And you will be one fine cookie. More importantly, this is precious in the sight of God. Homefront evangelism. Guys, it's your turn next week. You better be here. (laughs) Let's pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is so, it is so on point, so right where we are. And and in this moment, Heavenly Father, I just want to lift up before your throne of grace any of the wives who might be in this room right now who are in the very situation that the first century Christian wife might have been in perhaps even an extremely difficult marriage right now, seeking to live you out conspicuously before her husband, to represent you well in every way. Oh, how we lift up these wives, knowing that it is hard. Every day is hard. And we just ask you, by your grace, just draw close, pour out your your attentive love into her heart this morning. Reassure her that she's doing the right thing as she seeks to live out these virtues that you call for from her. And Lord, may she just feel a new infusion of of your supply to do it today, to do it again tomorrow and the next day in her marriage so that her husband sees you. And how I thank you that I can ask you for that. For all of us, Lord, we want, we want great marriages that will reflect a great God. 
May the things we've talked about spill over into our, our marriages today as well. We love you, Lord, but only because you loved us first. And we say thanks in Jesus' strong name. And everyone said amen, amen and amen. Let's stand together, church.